uh, one of the great philosophers in American history, a guy you may have heard of, his, his name is Kenny Rogers. <laughs> Kenny uh, sang, Dr. Rogers, I mean, sang a song once about a young man on a train who was sitting next to an old gambler. And the gambler looks at the young man and he says, son, I've made a living out of reading people's faces. And I can see you're all out of aces. So let me give you some advice. And I ought to make us all sing it, but I'm not going to, okay? The old man said to him, you got to know when to hold them. Know when to fold them. Know when to walk away. And know when to run. You never count your money when you're sitting at the table. There'll be time enough for counting when the dealing's done. That's going to be stuck in your head for the rest of the day. You're welcome. You're welcome. Well, at the end of the song, the old gambler drifts off to sleep and dies. Uh, having passed off his best wisdom to this young guy, trying to save him from the same mistakes that he had made along the way. He says, you've got to live wisely, son, so you don't end up like me. That's the whole point of the song. And that's really the goal uh, for every generation, isn't it? That every generation that we would take our collective wisdom and then pass it down to the younger folks so that they could maybe walk a better path than we did. But that begs a question. Are we a wiser people than we were in times past? And I'm not talking about technological or medical advance. I'm not talking about education. I'm talking about wisdom, the art of navigating life well. Are we a wiser people than in times past? Because it stands to reason that after so many generations after so many thousands of years, just in modern history, that all the wisdom that's been passed down to us, we would have figured it out by now. We would have made it all work. Everything would fit in its proper place, and we would all agree on what's right and good. But instead, what's happened, at least this is my perception, I think we're more confused and more divided and more backward now than perhaps we've ever been. So this idea that the collective wisdom trickles down and makes us uh, into a certain kind of person. It hasn't actually panned out, at least broadly and sociologically. That's bad news for us. That's bad news for me as I think about my own children and one day even potentially my grandchildren. Can I leave them anything behind that's going to make a difference to them? Well, the answer is yes. There is good news in the midst of this uh, terrible problem, this seeming lack of wisdom that we have, because uh, there is a wisdom that actually comes to us from God. Not a wisdom that depends on our ability to learn from our mistakes and then pass down what we've, what we've gathered, although that's helpful. But Ephesians chapter 5 today tells us that there is a way of life that has a true and lasting good. There's a way of life that pleases God because it comes from God. There is wisdom for us that comes to us through our salvation in Jesus. Again, you, know, we, we, you, could, you could share stories probably all day of people in your life who have imparted wisdom to you like the old gambler on the train, and you took a nugget from them that really shaped you and changed the way you live in a, in a really positive way. But you don't build a life on that, the Bible tells us. You build a life on what God gives us through his grace in Jesus Christ. And it's one of the most important truths that we, we hopefully learn the more we walk with Jesus, is that when he saved us, it wasn't merely a spiritual exchange that Jesus forgave me of my sins, he granted me eternal life in heaven, and one day this invisible soul within me will kind of float up to be with him. That's not really the essence of the Christian faith. Because the Christian faith, every bit of it, 
even the ethereal, mysterious, spiritual stuff, every bit of it works itself out in the real stuff of everyday life. And, and hopefully, as we walk through Ephesians, especially chapters 4, 5, and coming chapter 6, where Paul gets really nitty-gritty with us, he gets into the real stuff of life, and he says, here's how the Christian life applies. Here's what it means to live wisely. That's what today is all about. And it's interesting, uh, if, if you've been with us since May, we've been studying through Ephesians. We're, we're closer to the end than we are the beginning now. All of chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul didn't give us anything to do. He didn't give us any commands. He simply told us about the gospel and all of its facets. We got to see it from every angle. In 4, 5, and 6, he shows us what it means to live it out. And he uses a euphemism for life. He, he tells us over and over again how we ought to walk. Paul tells us how to walk. He told us initially in the very beginning of chapter 4, he said, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Later on, he said, walk no longer in your old way of life, but put on the new self, which has been created anew in God. Aaron preached from this last week. Uh, Aaron, by the way, preached a great sermon last week, so I put him with the kids this Sunday. So I didn't want him to get too big of a head, okay? So he and his wife are serving with the children. But Aaron preached last week, if you were here, from earlier in chapter 5, walk as children of light. Walk, walk, walk. I love that as a picture of the Christian life. Uh, this is not a sprint for us. It's a walk. We take one step, and then we take another step. We get closer and closer to God as we go. Well, now in the middle of Ephesians 5, Paul is going to tell us, again, he's going to say, walk in wisdom. He's going to tell us what it means to walk in a wisdom that's not from this world, that's not merely passed down, but that's given to us as a gift from God. So look at Ephesians 5, verse 15, what Andrew's read for us. Paul says, therefore, verse 15, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Paul says, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. What he says here is you, we, we live, we walk sharply and deliberately, intentionally, carefully. Be sensitive to your surroundings. Uh, Mike, I've got a six and a four-year-old. Their very favorite thing to play with is Legos. That's all they want to play with. We've got boxes and boxes of Legos, and I have no problem with that. Although the first time I stepped on one with my bare foot, I had a problem with Legos. I didn't want to have a Lego in my house ever again. That first, ah, oh my goodness, I can remember it like it was yesterday. That pain of stepping on a Lego, second only to natural childbirth, I've been told. <laughs> my wife's not here to refute that today. Um, that was a pain unlike anything. And, I, here's, and my point was, after that, I learned how to walk carefully. I learned that if, am I, if I'm in my house and I don't have something on my feet, shoes or slippers or something, I shuffle. I walk sensitively now. I never thought about it before, but all it took was one experience. And now I'm, I'm totally sensitive all the time. I don't walk in the dark without a flashlight in our home. And I'm not exaggerating. I've learned how to walk. Well, when Paul talks about walking uh, carefully here, we, we, we understand what he means. He's saying don't live in ignorance of temptation and sin and worldliness. Don't walk around aimlessly as if the world somehow is going to cooperate with our newfound salvation. And all the old temptations and desires are going to fly away and we're just going to mosey our way through life. He says, walk carefully because that's not the way it happens. Back in Ephesians 4, Paul instructs us. He says that we used to live 
in what he calls futility and darkness. We used to live in such a way that we were ultimately aimless. Even if we had for ourselves a very defined and distinct purpose, we were without God in the world, and therefore we had, we had darkness. We were groping around. We had no idea where we were going. But that's no longer the case. He says we've been enlightened. We've been made new. But it's still possible to walk in the old way, right? It's still possible to veer off course. And so he has to command us to walk carefully. And here's what he says it's like. Verse 16. Right here, I would expect Paul to, go, to start going back through a list of do's and don'ts. But that's not what he does for us here. He actually gives us something that I think is unexpected. In verse 16, he tells us what it means to walk wisely. He says this, Make the most of your time, because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. What an interesting command. When Paul says, make the most of your time, this is, I, I, this is fascinating to me. Uh, we have one word for time in English, typically. In Greek, there were multiple words for this word. Paul is not using the word for chronological time, clock time. That's not what he's saying. Paul is not saying you've only got 24 hours in a day, so you need to use your, your time wisely. That would be good advice, but that's not what he means here. He actually uses, uh, the Greek word is kairos. It's the word for season or uh, opportunity. Paul is saying make the most of your opportunity because the days are evil. To be a Christian, and we know this is true, to be a Christian is to live perpetually in a state of opportunity. And Paul tells us why. He says, because the days are evil. The world is darkened, and therefore to be a Christian is to be, even if it's a very tiny ray of light, we are light in a darkened world. Uh, Jesus told us that much in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, right? Neither do men light a lamp and place it under a bowl. That's foolishness. But they place it on a lamp stand so that it may give light to all who are in the house. That's your life. That your life is meant to be a light that gives light then to others in the midst of darkness. And so when Paul says that we make the most of our time, he's saying that your very life is a a constant showcase a display case of the light of God to a world that does not know and understand and follow Jesus. Uh, And in fact, we looked at this last week, again, if you were here, verse 8 from chapter 5, where Paul says this, this exact thing. He says, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. So when we look at our Time, Paul says, think of your time as your life, your, your opportunity, which is ever before you. Uh, life is fleeting. We have to recognize that. Life is a vapor. It's not as long as perhaps we think it is. And so Paul says, you have a time that you've been given, that you've been allotted, that you're to use now to be a light in dark places. The age, the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand God's will. Now this for me... Uh, is the question that haunts me. And I'm going to confess a little bit, and I think I'll probably catch us here, and you'll be able to relate with me. Um, the question I have to ask when I look at a verse like this is, uh, am I making the most of my opportunities to live in God's will, to know God's will and obey Him, to be a light in the darkened world? Uh, are you maximizing your opportunity as a child of light? I think this is one of the biggest sin issues for Christians. 
Not the obvious sins, but we, need, we struggle with obvious stuff. We've talked about that. We, we struggle with gossip. We struggle with lust, perhaps, and, and lying, cheating, stealing, outbursts of anger. The obvious things, we know those are wrong. One of the things that I think we struggle with as Christians that we don't notice, is we're almost ignorant to it, it passes us by, is, uh, is missing our opportunity. Here's, I'm going to give you two ways that this is a big struggle for me. Okay, But there are many ways this can manifest. Uh, it's possible that you and I can build uh, our lives on something other than Jesus. Something other than Jesus. And, and again, Aaron alluded to this last week. Something that perhaps is a good thing, but not an ultimate thing, and therefore we're sinning without knowing it. Two of the things I struggle with. Um, it's possible that we can build our lives on our families. We build our life around our family, and we think in that, I'm doing a very noble thing. Because, I mean, look around us. The family is disintegrating. The family is devalued around us in our culture. So I'm going to build my life and my significance and all my time and effort and energy around my family, my wife and my kids. So what ends up happening, potentially at least, is that we have seven different activities that our children are involved in and really deeply committed to, in addition to school, in addition to homework and everything else that we have to do. And we, we potentially, we spend all our time shuttling our children around from one thing to the next, and we end up completely drained, we end up completely distracted, our time is consumed, we can't even half the time keep straight what we're trying to do, and in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm just doing what's best for my kids. I want my kids to be happy and healthy and well-rounded, and that's why I do this. But is it possible that Kyle is teaching his children Uh, a lesson that I'm not intending? Is it possible that I'm teaching my children that life actually revolves around them and that Jesus lives somewhere out on the margins? Because that is the threat. In my mind, it's a very noble thing, and y'all look at me and say, oh man, Kyle, you're being a great dad. But it's possible that I've taught my children to neglect Christ in favor of activity. Uh, it's also possible that we can build our lives on something like money. Remember, these are my struggles, okay? You can fill in the blank. But um, I, I'm a guy, I worry a lot about money. I think a lot about money. And, and you know, I, I used to think that money was just, that's, that's a sin for wealthy people to deal with, not for normal people. But anybody can sin with regard to money, even if you're living week to week, even if you're swallowed up in debt. If it's something that I fixate on and worry about and seek constantly to manipulate, then it shows that I'm, that I'm building my life on it. And in that case, I'm, I'm missing out on what Paul told us in 1 Timothy. He said, do not fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. See, that's my problem. They're, they're uncertain. That's why I'm worried about them. He says, don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Fix your hope on God, not on money, and God will take care of you. See, here's what happens, though. When I get fixated, when I'm concerned, when I'm anxious and fraught with worry, I lose all opportunity for generosity, for service, for giving of myself, not just of my money, but of myself. Because all I can think about is how to to hold on to what I've got or how to get more of what I don't have. And see, I'm not in that case making the most of my time, of my opportunity, because I've built my life on something else, and Jesus, at best, gets my leftovers if he gets anything at all. Now, those are two things I deal with, 
but it can be anything, anything that we build our lives on. We don't even realize we're doing it, but when we look up and take inventory, Jesus is out on the margins, not in the center where he belongs. And I don't, listen, I don't doubt for one second that everybody in this room, you want to live a life that honors God, that pleases God. You want to live for him. You want to make your faith count. But it's possible that we can build our lives in such a way that we squeeze him out into the margins. And now we're trying to be, we're doing our best maybe to try to fit God in the cracks where we can, as opposed to him having the rightful place on the throne and building all of our life around him. And so, listen, and, and I'm going to give you, I'm going to quote myself in times past here, um, because maybe you can relate. I, if I ever say, I just don't have time to spend with God, I don't have time to read my Bible, I don't have time to pray. Um, I'm playing a victim card there, but it's, it's likely that I've built, I've built my life that way. I don't have time because that's the life I've built. I'm not the victim. I created that, and now it's come to haunt me. If I ever say, well, you know, I, I would talk to people about Jesus, but I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to be rejected. I don't want people to not, to, not to like me. Well, again, what have, I, what have I built my life on? I've built my life on the approval of people rather than the approval of God. And now God is just fighting his way in the cracks the best he can because I have pushed him to the margins. And I've, I've valued something or someone higher than him. And so listen, if we're going to obey this command, make the most of your opportunity for the days are evil, the days are dark, we are the light of the world, the ambassadors of Christ. If we're going to take that seriously and use this little, little bitty window of opportunity he's given us, uh, maybe for you, you just need to tweak a few things. For me, for most of us, I think, it's, it's going to require some overhaul. It's going to require some overhaul. Um, I, I've got to demote certain things in my life in order for God to have his proper place. And so, again, I'll take the two things I mentioned before. I've got to demote my children from the center of my existence. That is not where they belong. I'm not a good parent if I build my life around my children. I'm certainly not a good servant of Christ. I've got to demote them. That's not their place. I've got to demote money from, from the throne of my heart. It doesn't belong there. That throne belongs to Jesus, not to anything else. Certainly not the fleeting nature of wealth or my lack of wealth, or whatever it is that's my concern that particular day, I've got to get off the throne of my heart, whatever it is that isn't my Savior. And so you've got to refuse to give your best passion, your best desire, your greatest concern and fixation. You've got to refuse to give that to anything other than Jesus. Otherwise, we're going to live a life of constant um, missing opportunity missing the windows that God gives us to have an influence on the world because we've built our lives in such a way that has pushed him to the side. And when people say, I don't like Christians because they act just like everybody else, this is a big reason why. That's not an unfair criticism. I've built my life the same as everybody else, potentially. And Jesus is just fighting for the scraps. I've got to demote something or some things in order to walk wisely. And, and give the very best and most of the opportunities that God's given me. Um, now, that's hard for me, and maybe that's hard for you, but we've got to let that sit on us um, because a lot of us are ignorant to it. I don't realize I've done something wrong a lot of times until I take inventory and realize it's too late, and I've, my spirit has dried up 
in the favor of the thing that I've chosen instead of Christ. And we can't do that if we want to obey this text. Now, I'll say this. Incidentally, I'm going to say this is an opinion, but I think it's an undeniable fact. It is a fact that if you will demote your children out of the center of your existence, you'll become a better parent, not a worse one. It's true. If you'll demote money from the throne of your heart, you will feel richer, not poorer, even if your finances don't change a single dime. Because that's the way God has set it up. God set it up so that when we give our heart to him, when he's the center of our lives, there's a fullness and a joy that comes with that, even if our circumstances are horrible. Because he's where he belongs in our hearts, and we're making the most of the opportunity he's given us. We don't actually miss out on anything. Now, the next little section, this is broken into two parts. We're about to look at verses 18 through 21. They don't seem related, but they are. And I'm going I'm to try to show you how. Um, because Paul has told us what to do, but he hasn't told us how. He has said, right, um, walk wisely, be careful how you walk, don't be foolish, but learn what the will of God is. And now he's going to give us an insight into what that will is, what that wisdom looks like. Beginning in verse 18, he says, don't get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. <clears throat> don't get drunk, Paul says, for that's dissipation, which basically means it's going to ruin your life. Don't do it. But instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what Paul is making a point here, not so much about alcohol. I don't think that's really his point. His point is the latter half of that verse. He's talking about what controls us. Um, if you've ever been drunk, don't raise your hand, but here's the deal. If you've ever been intoxicated, you know this is true. The wine, the alcohol, is in control. That's the point. There's a, the, the, the substance in your body becomes the guiding, controlling influence of your behavior, your thoughts, your words, your actions, everything, right? Well, Paul's saying, don't do that. <laughs> don't, don't become intoxicated and controlled by a substance. He says what? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is to say, be controlled by the Spirit. God's Spirit given to us in salvation is to be our guiding, dominating influence. It ought to lead us and control everything that we do. Our behavior, thoughts, words, and actions. Let God's Spirit steer your life. And now, if that were, if that were the case, if God's Spirit was really in control of me, everything we've already looked at would be a given. Would we walk carefully, wisely, make the most of our time? Yes. Know the will of God? Yes, because the Spirit is controlling us, right? But that's not all. Paul actually gives us a few other implications here as to what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And I love what he says. He says first, this is verse 19, he says that your life is going to become filled with joyful worship. You see this in 19? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to God. This is one of the many places in the scripture where we are commanded to sing. Not, uh, this is irrespective of how good we think we sound. We are commanded to sing together. Right? Um, more than just that, the time in worship, okay? where in this case we sang a minute ago, we sang a song. All right? I hope you sang. But Paul is actually talking about a lifestyle, isn't he? You notice this? 
It's an interesting command. He says, uh, speak in hymns and psalms and spiritual songs to one another. Make melody in your hearts to God. If we know God's will and God's will for us is a life of worship, right? To his glory belongs all honor and praise forever and ever. Then wouldn't, wouldn't the things that come out of our mouth be worshipful? We looked at this at the end of chapter 4 in Ephesians. Uh, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Paul is calling us right here to a lifestyle of worship where what we say reflects a melody that's in our hearts. There's a joy that comes from knowing Christ and being filled with the Holy Spirit that influences now how we speak. Now, he's not saying walk around speaking song lyrics to each other necessarily but he's talking about a way we speak that reflects a heart that is overjoyed one of the one of the most important stories in the founding of our country that in the couple of hundred years that america has existed is the development of spirituals uh, that were developed by uh, the african-american slaves who were on the path to liberation. You've studied this, I'm sure, the Underground Railroad. They would sing hymns, they would write hymns, and communicate to each other through song concerning the liberating grace of God. And they would sing songs about the beauties of heaven, swing low, sweet chariot, and take me home. And it's interesting how when they sang of heaven, they weren't accepting their circumstances. We'll just grin and bear slavery until one day God takes us home. No, they were singing of heaven because it was the liberating grace of God that gave them hope in the here and now to keep on enduring until they were free. They sang to one another and they spoke the hymns of God. And that's what Paul calls us to do. That's a command. The Spirit, secondly, the Spirit also gives us an uncommon gratitude. You said in verse 20, he says, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, if you want to stand out as a Christian in our culture, you could just obey this one verse, and that would be enough. And I, and I mean that sincerely. If you've ever known a truly grateful person, it stops you in your tracks, doesn't it? Maybe, and I suspect this is true, if you've ever been around a person that from your vantage point, there's nothing for them to be happy about, financially, circumstantially, they're poor, they're homeless, they're dying of an illness, and yet there's a gratitude welling up from within them that staggers you, it freezes you. You can't make sense of it. That's what Paul's talking about here, that we give thanks, that there's a gratitude in us because of the name of Jesus Christ that regardless of our circumstances, we have received a grace that is mind-blowing, a grace that we'll never become accustomed to. It's new every morning. And God's will for us, Paul says, is not just to do nice things and avoid doing bad things. He's talking about a disposition of the heart. He's talking about a character that's full of gratitude. And if you will become this kind of person, I'm, I'm telling you right now, the world won't know what to do with you. A grateful person who's not quick to complain but quick to give thanks the world won't know what to do with you. It's one of the distinguishing marks of a Christian because it's one of these things that only God's Spirit can produce. It's being filled with the Spirit. We become grateful, uncommonly grateful. And then lastly, verse 21, he says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That third thing that, that filling of the Spirit produces. Uh, I talked a minute ago about demotion. We've got to demote things if we're going to live out the will of God. Paul says right here, there's something we need to demote, and it's me. 
It's you. We've got to demote ourselves so that we're subject to one another. Uh, when Jesus comes to dwell in your heart by faith, I think maybe the first thing he does, if not the first, and it's pretty quick, it's pretty early on, he kicks you off the throne. He, he removes this illusion that you are sovereign over your life and circumstances. That when we groped around in the darkness apart from Christ, we assumed that somehow we were the captain of our own ship, that we were sovereign over our circumstances. And Jesus comes in and quite forcefully, in my case, he says, no. I'm sovereign. I'm the captain. It's my agenda now. And to be a Christian is to gladly accept that. That's not an imposition. That's something we love because Christ has become our Savior. And so when he calls us to follow him, Luke 9, he says, you must deny yourself, the first thing he says, if you want to follow after me. Now, I, if I sit here, if I stand here, some of y'all, you know, y'all know me, but you don't know me maybe in, in all the in deep details of my life. If I tell you that I'm submitting to God, you may not be able to, to argue against that. There may not be any blatant, obvious sin that would stand to the contrary. But here's how you know, according to this verse, if I'm really in submission to God, if I'm really living out the will of God, is am I submitting to you? That's what it says. Be subject to one another. It's a given that we're subject to God, right? That's not the command. And this is, this is hard for me because everything in me, everything in my nature, in the old man, everything about me, wants to compare myself to you, to compete with you, to elevate myself above you or anybody else who gets in my way. That's my ambition. But a fruit of the Spirit, when the Spirit is guiding me, when I'm, when I'm intoxicated with Christ rather than any other substance or ambition for life, there's something that happens in me that now I look to you for your good over mine. And that may be the hardest of all. I can sing. Come on, man. I'll sing, even if it doesn't sound good. I'll make melody in my heart. I'll be grateful, sure. I'll at least fake it. Okay, but don't ask me to submit to people. Don't ask me to serve their good above mine. That's so hard for us. All right, but that's what it is to be filled with the Spirit. So think about this. When Paul says, walk wisely, know and obey the will of God, make the most of your time, the opportunity that God's given you, he's not just talking about a new moral structure for your life. Here's the good stuff, and here's the bad stuff. Do the good, avoid the bad. He's talking about a character. He's talking about the inner person of the heart, who you are deep down that only God can produce through his grace. He's talking about becoming a spiritual person. No longer, 1 Corinthians, a natural man, but a spiritual one. Somebody who has received the Spirit and now the Spirit is controlling your heart. We build our lives around Christ, not around any lesser thing. Um, how is it that you can sing a new melody in your heart to God? I mean, how is it that you can develop a gratitude in spite of your circumstances, even the very worst of things? How is it that you can become a truly submissive and servant-minded person that you regard others as more important than yourself? Paul says you have to be led by the Spirit of God. And see, this is a wisdom. I said this at the, out, at the, 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 the front. This is a wisdom that can't be passed down from any human being. This is not collective wisdom that we pick up along the way to make better life decisions. This is not wisdom that an old gambler can give to a young gambler to help him uh, save him from maybe some trouble along the path of life. This is a wisdom that has to come from a heavenly Father who loves us enough to lead us through life. Your heart can't change through good advice, and neither will mine. Our heart changes when we come to know and seek God through his Holy Spirit. That's why Paul tells us, Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit. 
and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Paul loves to use that phrase, that euphemism for life, walk one step in front of another. You're never going to figure it out all at once. I, I so wish that I could flip a switch and somehow all the godliness that God desires for my life would just be there. But you know it doesn't work that way. He says, walk. Walk by the Spirit. Walk that the Spirit would be your dominating influence, that the Spirit would lead you as God desires and just walk it day by day, and you will not. There's a promise. You will not carry out the desire of the flesh. You will not uh, uh, err to the right or the left, but you'll walk in the ways of God. Uh, My natural, fleshly old self does not want that. I want to build my life on anything other than God. Even religion, even church, I'll be devoted to that in my old flesh as long as it's not God. Because God says, Kyle, you're off the throne. Deny yourself. I'm taking sovereign control and leadership of your life. The old man, the old woman will not have that. That's why God has to give us his grace. I heard a pastor say it this week. We are, are in our old self, we are allergic to him. Even if we're in church every Sunday, we're allergic to God. We don't want what he comes to do. He's got to give it to us by his grace. So when we walk by the Spirit, we are living in God's will. And I'll close, let me close with an illustration I give to my kids. This is, I think this is easy, and you correct me if I'm, I'm not, I was not a science major. But we have a solar system that we live in, right? And there was a time when our solar system, we were convinced that it revolved around us. Of course, we thought that. that It revolved around the world, Earth, because we saw everything moving. And we just assumed that we were the fixed center of the universe. Well, we'll come to find out there's a, there is a fixed center in our solar system, but it's not us. It's the sun. It's the star that we revolve around. And not only us, but all the planets uh, find their orbit around the sun. Here's the question that I've got to grapple with when I look at, at the text for today. And I want you to do it with me. Um, what is the sun? Of your existence? What is the sun in your life? What is the fixed center by which everything else in your life orbits and finds its, uh, its place? Is it Jesus? I mean, we know that's the right answer. We know that's the church answer. Is he the fixed center? Is he the person that my life is built on and built around? Or is Jesus, because I am a Christian, is Jesus just one of many other planets, many other important things in my life that revolve around something else that's more primary than him. Now, I don't like to ask that question of myself, but it's, it's so necessary. Because I say it again, it's possible that in a very well-meaning way, I've built my life on something good that was not something ultimate. And in that case, Jesus is just another planet in my solar system. He's not my fixed point. The wisdom that God is calling us to here is not just a series of better life choices. He's not telling us to know when to hold them and when to fold them, when to walk away and when to run. That might be good advice in certain arenas of life, but for a life that honors God and for a life that becomes a light to a darkened world, Paul says that God is calling us to something that is not just handy wisdom that God dispenses to us when we need it. It's a way of life that revolves around him and therefore is guided, directed by his very spirit who has come to reside within us. If I've built my life on anything else, I'll never know this kind of wisdom, and I'll never know what it is to make the most of this tiny sliver of life that he has given me by his grace. I need to pray about this. I suspect we all do. So let's ask that God would give us the grace.
to obey this word today. Father, it, it's, it troubles me, Lord, um, to ask these questions. It really does. I, I have this, I, I live sometimes in this grand illusion that because I'm a minister, that I've just, I, I, I'm, I'm above, I should be above this. I should have this figured out. I'll help other people, but I'm good. Um, I, I know there are a lot of very mature and godly people in this room that might be tempted to think the very same thing, regardless of vocation. Father, would you humble us in this moment? None of us has arrived. None of us, none of us have gotten all of this right. And I thank you, Lord, that, that there are people in this room that I deeply admire and I, and I look up to. But I don't get a window into the, to the true nature of their own heart like you do and like they do. We need this, Father. We need to, to look into the face of Jesus Christ and, and be just burned up in, in the heat of his righteousness and holiness. Lord, we just need to, all that I've built my life on potentially just needs to be burned up. If it isn't you, if, if, it, if it hasn't been established on you, and, and if my greatest desire isn't you, Lord, then, then I, I pray that. I actually ask for that. Painful as it may be, Lord, I want you to, I want you to show me where I've missed it. Show us, Lord, where we've missed it. But then show us, Lord, and as we look into the face of our Savior, that your heart for us is not uh, punitive. You're not here to punish us for the, for, for our, uh, even for our deepest and darkest sins, Father, because in Christ, you've taken them away. As far as the east is from the west, Lord, so far you've removed our transgressions from us. And so, Lord, we trust that your heart is to bring us back, bring us back into alignment, bring us back into a life, Father, that's governed by your Spirit and not by our lesser desires, even our noble things that we think are good, Father. If it's not you, then, it's, then, then we're missing it. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would forgive us, Lord, where we've, where we've veered off course, um, that you'd forgive us, Lord, maybe even, even in cases where we've just knowingly rebelled against your will for us. And that, Lord, you'd bring us home. Bring us to your throne, the throne of grace. Bring us, Lord, to... Um, Father, to... Um, the, the, Ephesians 5, 8, that we are, we are now light in the Lord so that we might walk as children of light for the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Lord, let us, let our lives reflect that. Our hearts reflect that. Um, and Lord, make us a people who don't settle for less than that. Father, don't let my greatest ambition in life be just to be a good dad. Father, let that get thrown in with the rest if I'll just follow you and love you. Um, Father, Convict our hearts if our, if our greatest ambition is to be financially secure. Um, and, and give us a heart, Lord, that just longs for you. That we're rich in you. And that we wisely handle the rest on the side. Lord, this burdens me. I think it burdens us, Lord, because we know how much you've done for us. And we want our lives, Lord, to reflect that we, that we get it. 
and that we value what we have in Christ. And so, Father, um, I thank you that we don't come, we, we come to you empty-handed, Lord, but we come to you uh, totally full. We have nothing to offer you that you need, but you give us everything you have. All the blessings in the spiritual places in Christ are ours because we have trusted him. And so, Lord, let that be our, our, um, let that be our joy, even as our hearts are perhaps burdened by uh, the sting of your truth, Father, and lead us into your grace. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.